0: Welcome to Which Decade is Tops for Pops. My name is Mike Atkinson, and I am joined as ever by DJ Trev. Hi, Trev. Hello there. And by Nick Parkhouse. Hi, Nick. Hello. Before we go any further, I need to issue a caveat disclaimer. When you get to my time of life, there is a golden rule about going out on the town. You can still get away with it for one night. Do it for two nights. Two nights you are going to suffer listeners i had three consecutive big nights on the town in manchester over the weekend i came back on monday it's now wednesday and i'm still barely functioning as a human being my opinions may be more fractured than they usually are just letting you know that now whereas nick and trev have both had totally wholesome weekends no doubt and
1: are full of the joys I had two consecutive nights watching my co-hosts in action. It was very exciting. Oh, yeah. Nick
0: came all the way to Knaresborough, watched me DJ on the Friday, and we went to watch DJ Trev on the Saturday. I hope I didn't break you, Nick, because that was actually two consecutive big
1: nights out. I haven't been. I was saying this to somebody the other day. When I go out locally, I to go to the pub, you have a few drinks with friends and all that sort of thing. I haven't been in that sort of bar club, meat market slash environment for years. It was honestly like going back to when I was in my mid-twenties. I haven't seen anything like it. Well, <laughs> when I'm DJing, the music would be like going back to your mid-twenties as well. Well, <laughs> it was when
0: we first got there, Trev. It was wonderful because the place hadn't filled up yet. And... um it was very forgotten pits of the 1980s centric, your early sets, Nick couldn't have been happier.
1: Oh, I loved it. And then and then people start. it was one of those places where people start coming in and you're looking at women thinking it's taken you three and a half hours to do your hair just to come out to this place tonight and stuff. It was bonkers.
0: You'd see them making the big entrance, like the dormant would hold the doors open for them and they'd come sailing in like, ta-da, I'm here. And some of them made such an incredible effort and they got it so right that I just kind of wanted to burst into applause and go, darling, you're fabulous, but I restrained myself. The beautiful
2: people. The what beautiful can people I say?
0: of Harrowet, <laughs> yes. All right, we've preambled long enough. The Magic randomizer this time has given us a year suffix of four and a chart position of one. So we're going to look at records that were at number one in the charts on July the 12th in 1964, 1974, all the way through to 2014. As usual, we've got playlists so that you can listen along with us. tinyurl.com forward slash whichdecade27y for YouTube, 27S for Spotify, 27E for your extra tracks and your bonus bits. Right, let's bring on... The Sixties! This is House of the Rising Sun by The Animals. It was the first of seven top 10 hits that The Animals had between 1964 and 1966, and it was their only number one. Top the charts for a single week, it was replaced by The Rolling Stones with It's All Over Now. Massive international hit, it reached number one in the USA, as well as several other places. It charted three more times as a re-release. So in 1972, it got to number 25, 1982, it got to number 11, And in 2012, it just popped in for a week at number 98. House of the Rising Sun was a traditional song. It appeared in many different versions, both in the UK and in the USA, with a variety of different lyrics and arrangements. First came to the attention of the Animals when their singer, Eric Burden, heard it sung in a folk club in his native Newcastle. The song was given a new arrangement in 6H time, and the arrangement was credited on the label to the band's organ player, Alan Price there have been some hit cover versions in 1970 frigid pink took their heavy rock version to number four 1993 rage took their dance version to number 41 and in 1996 with his final ever single release gary glitter took it to number 77 but that's not all because in the 2010s a couple of uk guitar bands had hits with the same song. So in 2013, Muse got to number 19. 2017, Alt J got to number 40. The Animals went through many lineup changes, but this track was recorded in one take by the original lineup. The singer, Eric Burden, he later joined the US funk band, War, and he maintains a solo career to this day. He also leads a new lineup of The Animals where he is the only original member. As for other members, the bass player, Chas Chandler, he went on to manage Jimi Hendrix and then Slade, both to enormous success. And the organist, Alan Price, he went on to have a number of hits after he left the band. Some were solo, some were as leader of the Alan Price set, and one was a duo with Georgie Fain. Nick, I'll start with you.
1: So I feel I feel a bit about House of the Rising Sun that, that I felt about all along the Watchtower that we talked about in uh, season one in that it's one of those songs that just seems to have been around forever. A bit like All Right Now, I suppose, in that I sort of know all the words to it, even though I've never owned it, I've never bought it. I don't recall my parents ever owning it or playing it. The, The range of cover versions that you've alluded to in that intro is absolutely bonkers. Almost everybody seems to have covered it at some point. I've been listening to as many as I can find this week. There's a Dolly Parton one, which is okay. Jeremy Renner off of hawkeye in the marvel films has a version of it which is weird and not very good the frigid pink one i quite like the guitar version of it the sort of rock version of it's pretty good so it is to use the new parlance of this podcast a classic track in many ways but my question is the same as it was for all right now last week and it is do i like it and I've been listening to a bit of the animals this week and for a start, they didn't really write anything that they had a hit with. I mean, don't let me be misunderstood is great, but that was a Nina Simone cover. Um, we got to get out of this place was a cover and obviously has the rising sun dates back to the who knows 1800s, even before some think. So I actually assumed when it came up on the randomizer, oh, it's a classic track. House of the Rising Sun, and then having listened to it for instance, I don't think I do like it very much. But I absolutely accept that that is a personal opinion. It's it's a bit like Bob Dylan said that Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower was the definitive version, even though he wrote it. Dylan recorded this before the Animals' version, didn't he? And and when he heard the Animals' version, there's there's a story that he threw his guitar down and said, "That's what I should have done with it. I should have done it with an electric guitar. That's the version I should have made with it." So. What we got two songs that Dylan did first and inferior versions of. So draw your own conclusions from that, Bob Dylan fans. It's clearly a classic song, right? T- to be a hit four times for everybody under the sun to have done a cover version of it ac- across the years. I don't think anybody really improves it. The Muse version is fine, it's just the same broadly updated version. So I don't, but I don't really think I like it but absolutely do acknowledge its place in the canon of, I think, folk rock, I think, is its official genre. So I do absolutely accept that it's a classic. Do I like it? No. And my mum says Alan Price was a, quote, miserable bugger. (laughs) Um, Is the insight I can provide here. Of all the Animals records, I actually do like their other couple of hits more than this. so.
2: So I like this song so much that I always just kind of assume that other people feel the same. And uh, until recently, I didn't know whether or not that was true. And now I know that it's not true. But there's something else that I feel really, really strongly. And I'm not sure if other people feel like this. In Friends, Monica Geller refers to uh, this older guy as he's a grown-up. And not that I'm the grown-up, but that I feel everybody else in the world is a grown-up and I'm still a kid. So I look around at people like my age and I think, what am I? I'm like 25 in my mind. And the only way that in reality I know I'm old is because of one of the things that old people say to me. And by old people, I mean people my age. They come in in a place around DJing and they go, God, this place is full of kids. And it'll just be full of just an an average age spread. But they'll look around and they'll go, oh, this place is full of kids. I have 27-year-old people looking around at 21-year-olds and telling me it's full of kids. And they're talking to me and I'm nearly 50 I know this song Inside Out. I love it. I play it whenever I get a chance. I'd never seen the video before. They're just a bunch of bloody kids. Like, (laughs) I've been listening to this song. This is adult orientated rock. Obviously, it's got, you know, the folk history to it. It's quite middle of the road, but this is an adult band. And they look like nine at the best. (laughs) The, uh, The lead singer looks six. How did that happen? How are they doing this grown-up music when they can barely tie their own shoelaces? The song sounds like it's a band made of old people who in between songs like would be complaining about the size of the new five pence and like have those little tartan zip-up booties <laughs> that they wear and they, they don't know what a text message is. And in this video... They look like the kind of kids who scare me when they're stood outside the one stop when I'm nipping in to buy some tenor man. Um, basically, I just think it's got tons of gravitas. It's, it's got loads of depth. It's really well performed. I think really as an artist, the goal is for you to create something that is ageless and outlives you. And I think with this version of this tune, they've done that, these young whippersnappers and I'm surprised that Nick comes down on the side of not particularly liking it. I maybe didn't like this before I started DJing. I think a younger me wouldn't have liked this at all. And sometimes I want to drop in a tune that I go, oh, that's going to make me seem knowledgeable. And whilst this is not a crate digging track, it has that worthy feel to it. Yeah, it's a classic track. It's a real piece of music. Covers-wise... Five Finger Death Punch do a version of this, uh, I think featured in Sons of Anarchy and is a very, very good version. And as you were talking through all the cover versions, I think a band called Walls of Jericho did it. I like Walls of Jericho. They are very hardcore punk uh, and I'm pretty sure I've got a version of this by them, which was a real curveball because they scream the hell out of everything. I think it's a very, very good song. I can't believe that they look like they've got a combined age of me half my life ago but yeah what a fine tune
1: they absolutely do have a version of it you can find it on streaming
2: and i'll put it on the
0: extra tracks playlist that everybody loves so much
1: but if you put every version of house of the rising sun that has been a cover of on the extras playlist people won't have time to listen to them all before the next episode so they
0: won't have time to go to work and do the jobs yeah picking up this folk rock thing this kept coming up when I was reading around the subject. Everyone's going, oh, it's the first folk rock hit. Well, yeah, Eric Burden heard it first in a folk club. It doesn't sound at all like folk to me. I get that the song has been passed down via sort of oral tradition and has mutated into various different forms along the way, which is a very folk thing to do. But to me, it sounds far more like the blues than it does folk. So that genre category is a bit weird yeah nick made a comparison with all right now yeah for me it's a bit like all right now because like all right now it was ubiquitous for years you couldn't get away from this song for years and years and years i also think it was the wonder wall of its day because in the 70s and 80s every busker had a go at house of the rising sun which is one of the reasons that i always found house of the rising sun such an almighty turn off I think the other reason why I've always found it such an almighty turnoff was the two re-releases, because I don't remember it being a hit in 1964, I'm not that old, but I do remember it being a hit in 1972, and I do remember it being a hit in 1982. Now, both times, it was like a million miles away from what I was looking for from pop. And I would just hear the opening goes, there is a house, and I thought, oh, God, it's this dirge again. I would just switch my ears off until it was over, So I've had to reassess it. I've been forced to reassess it. I've been forced to pay attention. I still really don't get quite why it's such a standard. Lyrically, it's quite efficient that they express quite a lot in a short space. So my mother was a tailor. She sewed my new blue jeans. The narrator's mother wants him to go out, go to work, get a job, lead a respectful life, and as a worker, you would have worn blue jeans in America in the 19th century. And the mother was making some nice new blue jeans for him to go out to work. And all that is said in one line. But of course, the guy takes after his father and he ends up in this house of ill repute, be it a brothel or a gambling den or a dive bar or any combination of the above. It definitely shows a new development in the beat group movement if you will that had really only been around for a year at that stage already were branching out beyond she loves you yeah 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 and hippie hippie shape of the swinging blue jeans and all that sort of thing beat groups are getting kind of serious so this is a portentous heavy duty somber gritty sort of track it's not shaking a mop top around And it's bringing in those American blues influences. And the Animals weren't the only ones doing that. It was replaced at number one by the Rolling Stones doing uh, a Bobby Womack cover, for instance. And the Beatles were also bringing in American rhythm and blues tracks as EP tracks and album tracks. There was all that coming in, but it really brought blues, I think, to the forefront of pop. Probably encouraged the Stones to release Little Red Rooster later in the year, also got to number one. That's a proper grinding blues track as well so it opened things up there was a row about that arrangement being credited to alan price the members of the band were quite peeved about this they felt that their names had been cut off the label due to shortage of space on the label what it meant was alan price walked off with all the credit and therefore a much bigger share of the royalties so, I have sympathies for that. The story of the animals is the usual story endless lineup changes, bad management. They got ripped off financially. They had arguments with the label, arguments about the musical direction. They changed musical direction to try and keep up. They split. They reformed. There was a court case about who actually owned the name, The Animals, where the singer took on the drummer and the singer won. And, and yeah, that now there's this group where Eric Burton, is the only original member, still sort of ploughing what's left of the circuit. This is becoming a familiar story as we go through this podcast. There's stuff about this I do like. I think what really makes it for me is Alan Price, actually, is those rippling arpeggios that he's conjured up on his own Vox Continental. And Eric Burden, that's a rock voice there. That is an early example of a proper rock voice. He's a man's man. It's curious that (laughs) Trev thought he looked about nine. I had the opposite reaction seeing the video. I thought he looked like a man even when he was still a boy. He's all nukey brown and woodbines and pie and mash, you know? Maybe that's why I didn't chime with him. Maybe it's just a bit too wooly butch for (laughs) my. Campus sensibilities. And it turns out when the animals visited the state, so I mean, they were almost as big as the Beatles for a while, they were mobbed by screening teenagers. And I look at Eric Burden and I'm thinking, how come you were a sex symbol? 1964, very foreign country. Was it just because he was exotic because he came from Newcastle?
2: I don't know. I mean, he looks a bit like Alex Turner when they first uh... broke through. It just, a. Uh a street urchin who's picked up a guitar and he's doing some rock and roll i would have more put this in the country bracket than the folk but if there was a venn diagram of country folk americana blues and rock this would be right in the middle wouldn't it
0: let's move on here come. This is She by Charles Aznavour, it was the second and final hit for Charles Aznavour following the old fashioned way that had been a minor hit in 1973. She spent four weeks at number one and it was replaced by George McRae's Rock Your Baby. It came to prominence in the UK largely because it was used as the theme tune for a 1974 TV drama series called Seven Faces of Woman. There have been two cover versions that got into the charts subsequently in 1992, got to number 43, courtesy of Vegas. Vegas were actually Terry Hall out of the specials and fun boy three and Dave Stewart out of the rhythmics. And then rather more successfully in 1999, Elvis Costello recorded it as part of the soundtrack for the film Notting Hill. He performs the track on the movie that got to number 19. Charles Aznavour did write a couple of hits, at least a couple of hits for other people. I found two. So in 1964, he wrote For Mama by Matt Munro. And in 1993, he wrote, well, Mark Armand covered, I should say, What Makes a Man, which was one of his own compositions. Got to number 60.
2: So this feels um, a little bit like Yesterday by the Beatles for me, in that I thought, there were like a million cover versions of this. It feels like something I've heard in almost every film that I've ever watched. And I mean, obviously, who can forget in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, Anakin Skywalker looking through a rain-swept window uh, whilst in the background this is playing and a montage of soft-focus photos of Padme Amidala sort of drifts across. And, you know, it's, it's like the most emotive moment in uh, science fiction and, broadly speaking, cinema. Um, but this just feels like something that's, almost like an undercurrent to your life without you ever actually having listened to it. When you said the song title, I was like, oh, I I know how that goes. It's not like I'm familiar with the artist, but I'm like, oh yeah, she, it's an absolute standard. And then I've listened to it and I, I think it's marvellous. Well, I mentioned earlier about possibly trying to cling on to the idea of being young. Uh, and I think this tune is kind of the perfect flip side to that because I can't imagine there are many 20-year-olds who like this song. Like, I wouldn't have liked this. I would have just gone, yeah, rubbish. And for me, one of the upsides of growing old is that I can now go, yeah, this is just a lovely piece of music. I thought the last tune we've dealt with was a masterpiece, and I think this
1: is another one. So we talked, again, going back to season one, um, we talked about Claude Francois at some length, who wrote the French version of My Boy, which was the Elvis song that we talked about in that particular episode. Claude Francois obviously wrote My Way, French version of uh, Frank Sinatra's My Way and stuff. And Charles Aznavour, listening to the back catalogue this week, felt a lot like that. It is absolutely classic French chanson. If you said to somebody in the street, sing a song in a traditional French style, this is exactly what you would do. You would just go on in sur le noir, and carry on in that sort of vein. And, and a lot of what Charles Aznavour does is basically that sort of very, very classic French chanson. What I don't think I did realise is just how big a star he was. The list of people that he's collaborated with is like a who's who of... Music. He was in 60 films. He made 91 studio albums. He was voted as the entertainment celebrity performer of the 20th century by something like Billboard. He beat Elvis. He was touring into his late 80s. You know, he's an absolute global megastar. He's got every honour the French system could bestow on him. His family is Armenian, is his heritage. It's Asnavorian is his surname. And his family hid Jews during World War II while living in Paris and stuff. It's an incredible life story, if you read it. Just the most incredible fella. She, co-written by a fella called Herbert Kretzmer, who I don't think has come up on the podcast before, is the lyricist who wrote the English language lyrics to She. Um, Herbert Kretzmer, again, had a fantastic career. He wrote the English lyrics of Les Miserables, the musical, Um, He adapted it from French into English, and he's responsible for the English lyrics of that. And something that Mike will like, again, not the first time we've mentioned this, Herbert Kretschmer wrote the lyrics to Anthony Newley's music for Can Hieronymus Merkin Ever Get Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness? Um, Wow. Again, there's something we've talked about before. What I found absolutely staggering is that obviously this is a massive hit, right? It's an absolute classic. I agree with Trev. It feels like a, almost as a song that you were born with, that you've known forever, somehow, subconsciously. I think it is absolutely beautiful because what it does is that in, a, in anybody's life, there are dozens of people that you meet and fall in love with and fall out of love with and what have you. But there's only one she and I think that's what this song is trying to say, that the she, in this instance, is just that one person. And I think it does, a, just a, a very simple concept, but does it absolutely fantastically. Why I couldn't believe, I mean, it was re-recorded in, there's an Italian version, there's a Spanish version, an English version, obviously there's a French version. It never even made the French top 40. And you think, how is that possible when is French, did a French-language version of it. It was number one here for a month, but never even made the French top 40, which seems absolutely bonkers. Elvis Costello version, also lovely. We will come back to this when we get to um, the music of Richard Curtis later in the episode, I think. His English vocals, if you were going to be critical, are a little bit a low, a low. English is not the absolute best, but his voice is very emotive. It's very distinctive. It is an absolutely beautiful song. The English lyrics are stunning. It is sort of slightly lounge naff. I imagine, as Treff says, if you were 19 when this came out, you'd be like, what the bloody hell is this doing, clogging up the charts? It's old person's music. But I think it is absolutely timeless. If, you know, if Dua Lipa or Louis Capaldi came out and sang this now, it would sound phenomenal. Nick, you said
0: it sounds a bit allo alo. I'd go with, he sounds a bit haw he haw he And yeah, he was lampooned for that at the time. I think he was a favourite of TV impressionists. Charles Asner voice, that's what they used to call him. Charles Asner voice. And yeah, Nick, I was 12 when this was a hit. Charles Asner was 50. And looking at the video clip from around about the same time, he looks a lot older than 50. So this was not my music, a bit like House of the Rising Sun, really. July 1974, absolutely the dying days of glam rock, the glam rock that I had loved so much. Glam rock really didn't survive the summer holidays of 1974. At the time, I was all over Queen and Sparks and Cockney Rebel. By the end of the summer holidays, I'd be all over Yes and Gong. <laughs> My musical tastes were advancing rapidly. There was no place for Charles Aznavour. I had him down as naff. I had him down as parents' music. And again, it's that generation gap that we used to get really clearly in the pop charts for many years. It's like Engelbert Humperdinck keeping the Beatles, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields forever off the number one st- in 1967 it's like when Lena Martell got to number one in late 79 with one day at a time sweet Jesus parents music coming back go away leave the pop to the pop kids so it it never occurred to me for years that Charles Aznavour might actually be a serious songwriting and performing talent and I think I woke up to it when I interviewed Mark Armand in 2007 he was promoting a new tour. He'd just got an album of covers that just come out, and the lead track on that album was called I Have Lived, a Charles Aznavour song. So I got talking to him about Charles Aznavour, and he couldn't praise Charles Aznavour highly enough. He said he's a far, far finer songwriter than I could ever hope to be. And this was Mark Armand talking, and he'd already recorded two Aznavour songs before. He'd recorded... One of his most famous songs, actually, yesterday when I was young and he'd also done the single of What Makes a Man. Now, what a song that is. What makes a man a man? It's kind of song from the point of view of somebody trans. It's it's a sympathetic critique of gender norms. It's decades ahead of his time. It's written by Charles Aznavour, Mr. ha he off the telly. I really had to start reappraising him. So. I bought a CD compilation of the best of Charles Aznavour and I pledged to take a deep dive and really lose myself in the intricacies and subtleties of Songcraft. But I somehow never got around to it. So still don't have much knowledge of it to this day. But she is just utterly tremendous. There's nothing really further I can say about it. It's it's a
2: gorgeous piece of music. And I was being a silly little boy, basically. So your admission there means that Mark Armand is now going to stop listening to this podcast, isn't he? He's going to be like, he promised me he was going to listen to that Greatest Hits album. And he he was a liar, that guy, years ago. I can't believe you would. Did you lie to Mark Armand and said you were going to listen to the album? No. Or did you just lie to yourself? I made a pledge after I finished talking to Mark Armand. Not like a secret pledge, just an internal pledge. All <laughs> oh, I right. I'm. I thought that was how you were ending the interview. Do you know what, Mark? I'm going to go and I'm going to uh, listen to Charles Aznavour. And then you're like, "Yeah, no, I'm not. I barely got a word in, in the interview. My God, he crammed
0: a lot into 15 minutes. He was absolutely fantastic to talk to. But Charles Aznavour has gone on the record as saying that Mark Armand is perhaps his favourite interpreter of his
1: songs. Well, Mark and loved all of that because he covered Jack Braille and he absolutely loved that kind of style
2: I think his French accent, and I mean, this is in the fullness of time, adds to this song. Because, as Nick was saying, this feels like a French piece of music. And so the fact that it's done with a guy who's obviously French, I mean, it's very of the time as well. But I definitely think it adds to it because when I... Then went, oh, do you know what? I I like Elvis Costello's voice. I'm going to give him a go with this because I couldn't, off the top of my head, think how that went. And then it's pretty faithful, but it kind of, I think it lacks the fact that it's sung with the French accent. Elvis Costello just sings it. It's very well done, but I think the French accent actually adds to this. Yes, it is a bit cliched French, but it's not like it's an edgy, cutting-edge tune, is it? It's a very schmaltzy song, really, but that kind of works with the whole slightly lounge feeling to it so yeah I, I think his accent works splendidly
1: i would encourage you mike i had a very lovely afternoon listening to charles Aznavour earlier this week so i would encourage you to get your cd out and give it a whirl if i haven't sold the cd i have to
2: check
0: that that'll be my homework for next time i'll come back with three charles Aznavour songs that i didn't know tonight
2: we Charles Aznavour
1: power ballads, please. <laughs> if you leave me now, cannot fight this feeling, and uh, it is all coming back to me now. <laughs> <laughs> Il tout
0: revient maintenant. ho oh, ho. Oh, oh. It's time for the, the ladies. Ladies. is is Two Tries by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It was the second of three consecutive number ones for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, all of them topped the charts in 1984. Entered the charts at number one, stayed there for nine weeks, and was eventually replaced by George Michael's Careless Whisper. While it was at number one, their previous number one, Relax, climbed right back up the charts, and for two consecutive weeks, it sat directly behind Two Tribes at number two. No act had been at number one and number two in the charts in the same week since The Beatles. There were some further remixes. So a remix by Fluke got to 16 in 1994. Another remix by Rob Searle got to 17 in 2000. As for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, they had four more hits before breaking up in 1987, but each one peaked lower than the one before.
1: Right. The first thing I would say about Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood is that I have absolutely no context for this whatsoever. I was too young when it came out, so I am coming at it from having heard it as a later grown-up. Mike will probably talk about this more in a minute, but I think one of the big things about Frankie Goes to Hollywood, a bit like the Beatles in some ways, is that you had to be there for 12 months. They were as big as anybody has been in the history of music ever for a short period. And I think a lot of what Goes alongside and contextualizes Two Tribes and Relax and Power of Love is uh, how quickly they arrived and the impact that they had. You know, they were number one for so like 16 weeks in 1984, absolutely potty. I mean, Two Tribes is the 30th biggest selling single in UK chart history, Relax is the sixth biggest. You know, to have two consecutive hits that are both amongst the top selling songs in 70 years of the charts is within six months of one another, is absolutely bonkers. So I will come at this from a totally, I was too young, I don't remember it at the time, not aware of it. You know, the video was massive, but I don't remember seeing that. I didn't buy it, I didn't hear it. My mum and dad, a couple of years later, probably 86, 87, went to Thailand, I think, on some sort of work thing, and came back with a suitcase full of knockoff music that they bought all of these cassettes of modern albums for like 20 pence each from knockoff market stalls in Bangkok. And they just came back with this massive bag full of stuff of which Welcome to the Pleasure Dome was amongst it. So then I started playing Welcome to the Pleasure Dome and I played it again this week. It is absolutely nuts. Mm. Welcome to the, I mean, what on earth is going on with it? It's 64 minute double album that veers from Little snippets of songs and talking into a 13 minute version of Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, into cover versions of Born to Run and Do You Know the Way to San Jose and War. And Ferry Cross the Mersey, and then it'll go into some talking, and then it'll be a remixed version of Relax that isn't quite the same as the one you know, but li- and then Two Tribes. It's absolutely mental as an album. It takes uh, like a concept down to a whole new level. It is absolutely barking mad. Again, everybody knows Two Tribes, right? And if they'd come out Eurovision the other week, having reformed and done Two Tribes in the current climate, you think that would have been quite a thing. But they didn't, did they? They did Welcome to the Pleasure Dome and then went off stage and everyone went, what? Was that worth all the fuss? I don't really know. Anyway, um, so everybody knows Two Tribes, right? Everybody knows the video, uh, the fights. Everybody knows the Chris Barry, Gordon Brittas doing the Ronald Reagan voiceover for it, you know, at the start of the song. Everybody knows the chorus. But again, the question is, do you like it? And what I do like about this is that I like the fact that what they've done very deliberately is the whole thing is obviously a Cold War story, and they mesh American funk bass with a Russian orchestral arrangement, which I think is very subtly and very cleverly done, that you still get the Russian and the American element of the sound within a song about that topic. And I think it's quite meta, but it's actually a very clever Approach and a clever thing to have done. I don't like it as much as Relax. I think Relax is just an absolutely perfect piece of what I don't know what is it pop, disco, rock, club, house. I don't know what it is. I do like Two Tribes, but I don't love it. And I don't love Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I've listened to uh, both their albums this week and there are little bits of it that I like. But again, the caveat is I think you had to be there. I think if you'd been there, it would all make a lot more sense. And just hearing it later on, it's much harder to see what the fuss was about, because I think the album's got a lot of filler, but it's got three outstanding singles.
2: So my generation wasn't the first to live with the feeling of doom and terror, kind of as a sort of cultural background to our childhoods. For example, I'm pretty sure the Cuban missile crisis was not entirely pleasant to grow up through. But nevertheless, the opening of the air attack warning every time I listen to this puts me right back to that time. Terrifying public information films. Uh, about the nuclear threat, and also around that time, bizarrely, relevantly, the emergence of AIDS and their very scary adverts. And then just scary adverts about what would happen if you fell into quicksand or if you went into still open water or if you climbed up a pylon and it was just generally scary and horrible. I mean, my childhood was spectacular. I loved it. But the cultural feeling was very dark and oppressive and I suppose the one thing that people who did grow up through those awful eras of uh, fear and despair can take pride in is the fact that now we have built a better world and today's kids have like nothing to fear, but fear itself. I imagine I may have not checked the news recently, but it's pretty good at the moment, isn't it? Everything's good and everybody feels fantastic. So good job, everybody. Um, But what you can actually take as a positive from, you know, the crap stuff that went on in the 80s, the scary nature of things in the 80s, is that artistically challenging circumstances give great moments of creativity, such as this. I think the way this deals with something that was a very, very scary thing for people is just so well done. It's a pop record, but it's talking about very serious stuff. It's not talking about love and marriage and it's not talking about the emotions of the heart which are serious things this is talking about thermal nuclear warfare on a global scale and it does it with pop sensibilities i think what nick says about the american and russian sounds that influence this track that's really well observed i didn't even notice that and the second you said it i'm like oh god yeah that's brilliant it's the third of three classic tunes that we've had this time around And it's the first one that I think you could legitimately call a banger without any, you know, nuclear Armageddon irony or puns there. And in the video, Holly Johnson, who we've had cause to discuss in the past, perhaps in not entirely complimentary ways in this podcast, looks every inch the pop megastar. He just oozes charisma in the video. And I don't remember the hype so much, but I do remember this at the time. And I look at it now and I get the hype around them as a band and then him as a solo artist as well. It's as pure total 80s energy as like some of the best Wham and Duran Duran videos are. I think it's a really strong week uh, so far with the tunes. And, you know, Nuclear Armageddon is a pretty dark subject matter. If you want a positive spin on it, Whilst, yes, we have made the same mistakes as previous generations have over and over again. And we might be going back to the same type of situation as they were in in the mid 80s. There's a band called Nothing But Thieves at the moment, uh, who in many ways remind me a lot of Frankie Go to Hollywood. And they say on their current album, we shall overcome as we've done before. I really hope they're right. I think this is a fantastic song about something that was pretty damn scary, but it's tune. Hmm.
0: Well, I was living in Berlin when this was released, and indeed when Relax was released. I spent a year there and moved back right at the end of July, 1984. And just a few weeks before the week we're talking about, a friend of mine in Nottingham wrote me a letter, as we did in those days. And he said jokingly, what's with all these homosexuals in the charts then? And I've taken a look back at the singles charts in the week that two tribe entered the charts at number one and i've looked at the top 12 and this is what we've got so we've got two tribes by frankie goes to hollywood number one number two we've got wham wake me up before you go go yeah george michael wasn't out yet but some of us had already worked it out number four bronski beat small town boy an out gay pop group Number five, Evelyn Thomas, High Energy, a song whose title refers to the style of dance music that was played in gay clubs and the tune which was first broken in gay clubs, written and produced by the biggest gay club DJ in the country. Number eight, Elton John, Sad Songs Say So Much, already out as bi, later to come out as gay. At number 10, The Smiths, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, they had already released several songs with homoerotic themes such as handsome devil and this charming man. And Morrissey, whatever it was, clearly wasn't straight. Number 11, Frankie Goes to Hollywood again with Relax, a song about gay sex. And at number 12, Hazeltine, Searching, I Gotta Find a Man, a high energy song, had already been huge in gay clubs for a whole year before it entered the charts. We just said goodbye to the Weather Girls, It's Raining Men that had been big in gay clubs for 18 full months before it made the charts. Uh, we just said goodbye to Queen's I Want to Break 3 with the drag video. And we were just about to say hello to You Think You're a Man by the late drag queen Divine, the first ever hit produced by Stock Aitken Waterman. So like, there was this moment, and I've always remembered it specifically, the queerification of the UK singles charts. And this did not last long at all because... Mass public acknowledgement of AIDS was just around the corner. We weren't quite there yet. The The adverts with the tombstones, that was 1987. The hounding of gay people by the tabloid press, that was more of a 1987 thing. So there was this false dawn in 1984 that the gays were coming in from the cold and gay culture was going to be part of mainstream culture. And it didn't work out that way. So that's very much a side note to... You know, what Two Tribes is about specifically. Oh, I should just also say the other four songs in that top 12 were by Spandau Ballet, Ultravox, Howard Jones and Denise Williams with Let's Hear It for the Boy. So the charts weren't exactly a massive seething testosterone, with the exception of the three lads at the back in Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And the B-side of Two Tribes is an interview with the three lads and they are quite moronically laddish so the one bit of laddishness is in the charts was from frankie goes to hollywood bizarrely so yeah i was living in berlin relax have been absolutely massive hit in germany and two tribes became an absolutely massive hit in germany as well i remember this exploding suddenly all over the radio And the radio stations in Berlin were playing the 12-inch mix every bit as much as they were the 7-inch mix. The 12-inch mix, the one with the voiceover saying, your grandmother dies, stick her in a bag and put stick her out the shelter or something like that. I mean, this was chilling stuff to hear. And it did absolutely catch a moment. We knew it was on its way because Holly Johnson had given some interviews prior to its release after a Laxabina hit. And he said, you just wait for Two Tribes. He said, Two Tribes is the ACNR pack. And this was a band that had scandalised the nation with all their talk of gay sex. And suddenly they come back with a single that was equally as powerful, but on a different theme. And it was encapsulating that intense feeling of paranoia about an imminent thermonuclear war. They'd taken two of the big subjects, sex and violence. And in the closing lines of the song, Holly Johnson actually says, are we living in a land where sex and horror are the new gods? I mean, it's almost taking a swipe at their popularity is the only reason Freddie goes to Hollywood. It's a successful band because we've talked about sex and horror. Take a look at yourselves. Conceptually brilliant. It's a funny song. It's not really a song song. It's a bit unfinished. So there's a verse, culprit number one, a born again, poor man's son. That verse is all about Ronald Reagan. There isn't a second verse, culprit number two, Konstantin Chernenko, who was at that time the head of the Soviet Union. That must have got left on the cutting room floor. So it's a bit uneven in that way. But then Frankie follow it up with the power of love. The third in this perfect trilogy, they've dealt with sex, they've dealt with war, they've dealt with love. They've made ultimate statements of all of those. Where are they going to go next? You cannot top an opening trilogy like that. And Nick is right. That debut double album, so full of filler. I think they were almost like they were covering up the fact that they didn't have anything else as strong by just making it incredibly long and doing sort of clever conceptual tricks to make it look like this big content album. It was a bunch of B-sides and a bunch of random cover versions. And Welcome to the Pleasure Dome came along. It only got to number two because, well, that doesn't fit into the trilogy. And then gradually there were diminishing returns the other problem the other thing that did for frankie was really band-aid followed by live aid because band-aid and live aid shifted pop fundamentally on its axis and all of a sudden we were all about authenticity and realness and no conceptual gags none of this new pop no sort of poncy hairdos and cocktails and flashy suits it was all you know serious prosaic stuff, if you like. So Frankie lost their place in the pop pantheon very quickly in 1985. But what an incredible moment they had. And of all the huge number of remixes, the one I urge everybody to listen to is the version of the single that I bought at the time. It's the cassette single. And the version on the cassette single, which you'll find if you go digging around, is the Keep the Peace mix. It's 15 minutes and 27 seconds long. And it is the ultimate version of Two Tribes. It's got the best of all the other mixes combined. And this is a song that really, really works as a 15 minute, 27 second epic. I'll put it on the extra tracks and bonus bits playlist.
1: Just going back to you saying about the context of the warning uh, bit at the beginning of the song and the subject of the song. This was still in the top 40 in September 1984 when the BBC showed Threads, um, Mm. that kind of iconic drama about a nuclear bomb landing in sheffield so it was a real thing at the time two tribes still in the charts at the point where the bbc aired that incredibly traumatic i think to this day drama so two tribes
0: also inspired culture club to make their first big misstep because boy george had heard two tribes and he thought god i need to raise my game i need to do a bit of social commentary so he got culture club to record the war song War is stupid and people
1: are stupid. And it did for them. It does score a point to Tribes for having the line, Sock it to me biscuits. Yeah, right. Any any song that mentions biscuits automatically gets a, a, a one place higher in the ranking. I think another thing
0: that worked against Frankie in 1985, it was pretty widely known that the band didn't play on the records at all. It was done by old oh, members of the injuries, blockheads, session musicians, It was a Trevor Horn hit, really. It was based on an original idea by Frankie, but it was essentially Trevor Horn did most of the studio work. And come 1985, when we're all about authenticity and Bruce Springsteen and U2, the idea of an artificial band not actually playing their instruments also fell from favour.
1: Is this where I make myself looking like an absolute pillock by saying that my favourite Frankie Goes to Hollywood hit is Watching the Wildlife?
0: Oh, I hadn't forgotten because Holly Johnson's Love Train came up in season one and you made this startling claim. I listened to it again the other day. It's it's fantastic. Listeners, if anybody else out there has watching the wildlife as their favourite Frankie Goes to Hollywood single, please let us know. Nick can't be the only one.
2: Or maybe he is. (laughs) That was like... if. The subjects that have been covered in this podcast have affected you. (laughs) For example, if you like watching the wildlife, please get in touch. (laughs) (laughs) Helpline is available. Time for
0: the next decade then. Here comes... love is all around by wet 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 it was their third and last number one it followed That's with a little help from my friends in 1988 and goodnight girl in 1992 it spent 15 weeks at number one from the fourth of june all the way through to the 16th of september and it was replaced by wigfield's saturday night it remains to this day the third longest running number one hit in the uk behind frankie lane's i believe and brian adams everything i do i do it for you and it shares that third position with drake's one dance altogether wet 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 had 12 top 10 hits between 1987 and 1997 plus a final top 10 hit in 2008 and lovers all around had originally been a hit for the Trogs, who took it to number five in 1967
2: You just can't get away from the trogs, can you? Um, I had absolutely no idea this was a cover. And I do find it a little hard to separate this from the Four Weddings and a Funeral film. I actually think it's Billy Mac's Christmas is all around version from Love Actually that really makes this a soundtrack anthem. Smash Hits may have mocked The Wet, as they call them, but... I, I do think it's hard to argue that he's got anything other than a great voice. And yet it's overblown. It's overdone. It's over the top. It's overplayed. But I still think it's a brilliant moment. It sits along the stadium pop, the likes of Take That, uh, some of Brian Adams' songs, moments of Coldplay. There's nothing spiky and edgy and dangerous about this, but that doesn't need to be. Sometimes soft and drippy, is just lovely. I've not really got much else to say about it than that. But this is just a very nice pop song. Uh, well, we say this is a power ballad? It's a ballad, yeah. But is it power? Is it ballad?
1: What we're we saying? I don't think there's enough yeah, guitar no. in it.
0: Well, there's quite a
2: lot
1: of guitar in it, but it's
0: just not in that genre. I don't think. But it's a ballad,
1: yeah. But we're just saying it's not a
2: power ballad. It's
0: probably on the Now That's What I Call 100 Power Ballads compilation, but then everything is.
2: Yeah, it's a firm thumbs up anyway from me.
1: So we leap from the 30th and the 6th biggest selling songs in UK chart history to the 11th biggest selling song ever. I think it's easy to forget that when Wet 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 turned up in 1987, they were a big, new, interesting, slightly different pop band. I mean, their album, Popped In Sold Out, was called that deliberately because it had that kind of soul sensibility, but it was still a pop record. And they were seen as kind of new and interesting. And, you know, Wishing I Was Lucky was fantastic and uh, Sweet Little Mystery and stuff. And then they sort of evolved into a... I don't know, it's hard to explain a sort of simply red esque radio two friendly. I don't want to use the term vanilla because it sounds derogatory, and I think they're better than that. Wet, wet, But it they have become this kind of radio two staple, safe kind of band, haven't they? I agree with Trevor. I think Marty Pello has one of the absolute best male voices of my generation. I think his vocals are stunning on everything. I think he's an incredibly talented vocalist. I liked Wet well, Wet well, Wet well, up until this point. I actually think that their songs are really nicely crafted. They've got. I was trying to think of it. as just a Texas vibe in that it's really nicely made, well written, well played, melodic if, generic pop music. But I actually think that a lot of their hits are great. I mean, something like Temptation. His voice on Temptation is stunning. It's a beautiful arrangement. It's just a great... Angel Eyes is a beautiful record. G- "Good Night Girls a great ballad, if you like, that sort of thing. And some of the stuff they did after this, Julia Says and various other things. So I actually really like "Where of Wet and I've liked them through the ages. This is one of those songs that, of course, everybody knows it, right? And, if, uh, and, of course, you hear it and you roll your eyes and you think, Christ, this was number one for months and nobody could escape it i mean the band bloody deleted it eventually they got so fed up with it they just deleted it from sale and it still got to number two even the week after they deleted it from sale somehow um there were enough copies still in existence that it still managed to stay at number two in the charts so everybody by the time this had dropped off number one everybody was fed up with it right we've all had enough of this a bit like the brian adams thing enough is enough Coming at this, though, from a distance, from a 30-year distance, having not heard it every day for weeks on end, you get to appreciate, I think, what a really well-crafted song it is. I think it's much better than the original. The intro is much more powerful. It's much more interesting. I think it's more melodic. The orchestration of it is much nicer. So it's much better than the original. It's incredibly likeable. And of course, it had the tie-in with an incredibly successful film, and it kicked off what became, for maybe a 10-year period, a very easy route to a big hit was to get your song in a Richard Curtis film. We've talked about Elvis Costello's She from Notting Hill. Notting Hill obviously also gave us When You Say Nothing At All by Ronan Keating, which was a number one hit. Bridget Jones' Diary gave us It's Raining Men, number one. Out of Reach by Gabrielle was a top five hit. Love Actually Gave Us Jump by the Girls Aloud was a number two hit, I think. So for, for a long period, if you got your song... And the Four is in a Funeral soundtrack has got tons of good stuff on there. Elton John, Sting, you know, it's got big names recorded original and covers and songs, La 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 Means I Love You by Swing Out Sister. You know, I went to check yesterday and of course I've got a CD version of The Four Weddings and a Funeral soundtrack. There was a point at which one in six households in the UK had the Beautiful South greatest hits on CD apparently. And it feels like one of those ones that if you're my age or similar to my age, the likelihood is you've got a copy of The Four Weddings and a Funeral soundtrack in your house because you probably did buy it because every bugger did. So it was a big deal. I can understand why people would have the same reaction to this as they may with, you know, with All Right Now or something where you just think, God, I've heard this too much. And Jesus Christ, I wish it would just go away. I've had my fill of it. Actually, I'm the other way. I think having not heard it for a long while and hearing it the other day, it sounds fresh. You could absolutely see why it was a massive hit. And without it, Reg Presley wouldn't have spent a million quid researching crop circles would he so we've also got that to thank it for because that's what he spent his royalties on oh Nick
0: we may have crossed swords last time with Roxette but your assessment of wet 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 and of lovers all around it's exactly on the same page with what I was going to say anyway. Totally agree with you about Wet, Wet, Wet. First two singles, well, different, adventurous, kind of risk-taking in their own way. Then they settle down into that kind of Radio 2, Simply Red style niche, but it's quality pop and it's really well done. Not quite my personal thing, but I did appreciate it at the time. And yeah, this song was number one all the way through the summer holidays of 1994 and we did all get completely sick to the back teeth of it and huge kudos for wet 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 for also getting completely sick to the back teeth of it that was a really sporting move on their part and again like nick heartily sick of it by the end of 1994 but i somehow don't seem to have heard it for years I mean, it must have been played in supermarkets and i've just sort of tuned it out but i've not knowingly sat down and listened to it for years and that changed maybe two or three months ago when I kept home from DJing on a Friday night. I liked kick back with a glass of wine and some Top of the Pops reruns on BBC4. And they were doing Summer 1994. And Wet 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 came on several weeks running, performing Love Is All Around. But the first performances were before it got to number one. And I think there were a couple of performances after it got to number one. And at that point, they're not sick of the tune at all. They're really excited to be playing this great pop song. You can see the enthusiasm. You can feel the spirit. I think one of the performances is actually a live satellite link up. And you're thinking, these guys are really into this song. And that that renewed it for me. I thought, God, this actually was really good. It's not boring old love is all around at all. And then when the magic randomizer threw it up, I've had to listen to it a whole load more times. I'm still not sick of it. In fact, I played it this afternoon for the final time before doing this recording. I got actual shivers up my spine from bloody love is all around by wet, wet, wet. I got shivers for goodness sake. It is bizarre. It was so well placed in the soundtrack of Four Weddings, and yeah, that's why it was number one for fifteen weeks because it plays over the end credits of the film, just as you've had this wonderful feel-good movement at the end of the movie, you're straight in to the feel-good, love is all around. And the, when I went to see Four Weddings and the Funeral at the cinema, as it started playing, I heard the young woman behind me say to her friends, oh, I've got to get this single, you know? And that was about eight weeks into it being number one. So there's a bit of slight market research there. The only thing that slightly jars is when Marty Pellow tries too hard to sound like a soul man that he never actually was, despite having gone all the way to America to make an album with Al Green's producer, Willie Mitchell in Memphis, I think it was. So he does these things. They, they're meant to sound improvised, but they're clearly quite calculated. He, he does these little add-ons, lyrics. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, I did. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, no, 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 give it a rest, please. You're, you're Marty Pellow. You're a Scottish pop singer. That is my single quibble with this Actually, magnificent and timeless pop classic.
1: There's a story that Richard Curtis approached Wet to do a song for this album and he offered them Love Is All Around, I Will Survive, or Can't Smile Without You by Barry Manilow. I mean, which are you going to pick? Well, the other two songs do end up appearing on the soundtrack. If you have a look, they are in the film as well. But they said it was a really easy choice because they knew that they could do something with it different that would make it sound like them.
2: Honestly, all the way through, I was waiting for your review because in previous weeks, Mike, you've been around about this time. You've been putting on your football boots, ready to give whatever (laughs) me and Nick like a right kicking. And I'm like, oh, he's going to do it. This is going to be the one where he goes, no, terrible studs up. This is the worst thing that I've ever heard and I was pleasantly relieved. That. You know, sometimes I surprise myself. <laughs> right, that's the 90s done and
0: dusted. On we go to... The Naughties! But I don't understand. Why? See, burning me to hold on to this. I know this is something I gotta do. This is Usher with Burn. It was the 6th of 15 top 10 hits for Russia as a lead artist between 1998 and 2015. And he had 4 further top 10s as a featured artist. It was the 3rd of 4 number 1s that he had in the UK. It followed You Make Me Wanna in 1998 and Yeah in March 2004. Spent 2 weeks at the top and it was replaced by, oh Lola's Theme by The Shapeshifters. In the USA, "Burn" got to number one and it actually knocked off another Usher single, Yeah, off the top spot. And as a result, that meant that Usher spent 19 consecutive weeks at the top of the Billboard singles charts.
1: OK, I have two apologies I would like to make to Usher Raymond IV. The first apology is that for almost 20 years, actually, no, more than 20 years, I have misgenred Usher. Because for nearly 25 years, I have assumed that Usher was like um, sort of um, 50 Cent and Dre and Kanye, Latterly and all this sort of thing. So I have essentially completely discounted him because I don't like P. Diddy or Snoop Dogg or any of those people. And because I thought that Usher was like them, I've just discounted it. You
0: mean a rapper,
1: Nick? I mean, a rapper. That's right. I assumed he was a rapper. OK, technical term. Right. Thank you for correcting me there. My second apology to him, I think I assumed he was a wrong for almost similar reasons. If you go to a page of a, uh, what did you call them? a rapper? If you go to rappers like Wikipedia page and you scroll down far enough, there will be a section called controversy. Right. Where it tells you that they are wrong <laughs> Right. Well, it tells you all the nasty things that they've done and all the stuff that they've done. And you think, oh, God. So I went to Usher's Wikipedia page literally to go down to the controversy section. And there isn't one. He's, obviously, he's actually apparently just a nice man, just a very nice, sensible man. He's also considering that he's been around for years. The other thing, going back to what Trevor's saying about the animals, he's five years younger than me. And you think, how can that be? I'm sure he's been having it since I was a child, but he can't have. So I arrived at Usher this week with, frankly, an awful lot of terrible misconceptions about his style of music, what he was like as a person, you know, that I didn't like him and all this sort of thing. Now, it turns out, again, perhaps this is a third apology that I didn't realise he was quite as successful as he is. It turns out, according to Billboard, he was the second most successful artist of the 2000s. And you're like, what? Who's number one, by the way? Anyone know who's number one? Anyone have a guess? Billboard's number one biggest artist of the 2000s? Mariah. Eminem? It was Eminem. Very good. Well hey. done. He sold 80 million records. He spent 320 weeks in the UK top 75, which is about, what's that? Six, seven years. So again, I didn't realize that either because I don't like it. I think I've just paid no attention. And he's had umpteen hits and 19 UK top 10 hits and all these number ones and stuff. And I don't think I realized that either. So apologies to Usher because for all of those reasons, I've just heard the word Usher and just gone no for 25 years. So then I thought, right, let's listen to some Usher. Now, the caveat to all these apologies is. Having listened to Usher, has my mind been changed? And the answer is no.
0: Oh um, it, God! After a build-up like that,
2: oh my God! Oh,
1: right. So <laughs> it's music for people who drive sports cars to make love to, is what it is. Right? It's bump and grind, R and B. It's background music for people with satin bed sheets. Beautiful people making beautiful babies to have on in the background. And burn is about the zenith of this. It is just a right okay, you've got to differentiate between it's rubbish and it's not my bag, right? So let's be sensible about this. It's not my bag. It's not rubbish, even though I don't like it, it clearly isn't rubbish. It does its thing. It's R b you know, g- making googly eyes and biting your top lip come to bed face at you as a lot of his music does but it's confessions and all that it's just it's not my bag at all I'm afraid so I apologize for all the misconceptions I'm sorry I should have listened to you before but all that would have happened is that I would have not liked you earlier for reasons other than my preconceptions had I listened to the music earlier I would have just realized that I didn't like the music soz so no The, the roundabout way of saying god this is not for me Sorry,
2: I, however, don't have any apologies to offer to Usher because really, once the worlds of hip-hop, rap and the broader urban music got this far, I was just done. Yeah, by Usher, is a hip-hop banger. I think that's a great, great record. Closer is a dance floor smash. I think that's very well done as well. I think this is... Direction section rubbish. I don't think it's a bad song, but it is so very firmly the type of stuff that I do not like. The subtitles on this video open up with... So when there's um, an instrumental playing, it'll sort of try and describe the music. You know, like if, if waves are crashing, it will say, waves are crashing. Or if horses are galloping across the surface of the moon and you're about to listen to a song by Muse... It will say horses galloping across the surface of the moon. The opening subtitles of this just say gentle RB music, which just <laughs> covers this, doesn't it? The spoken word bit at the beginning is honestly, I think, is cringe. And I think the production is so soft and gentle. I've written down here, you can barely remember how it goes. I'm going to change that to I cannot remember how it goes because already I can't. It makes complete commercial sense for these types of artists to do stuff like this because it shifts units. But is there much in the way of artisticness to this? I, I don't particularly think so. Like I say I don't think it's an awful song. I loathe it. But I do think it falls short of being actually soulful and is just relatively forgettable, ultra, ultra soft pop. Um, I've said this before about some of the R&B stuff it's marketed as being street and yeah, word up. I don't think there's anything street and word up about it. This is just pop. He does this dance in it because he's like a bad man, is he? And if you're doing a wild, crazy dance moves in your video, it makes a lot more sense. If the song is something that you could actually dance to, all you could do with this is rub yourself against someone's body. Yeah. Now that's fine. And that's, there's a time and a place for that. Uh, and I absolutely fully understand that, nightclubs across the country full of hormoned up 18 year olds at the end of the night yeah put this on and off they rub and then they vibrate up the street and go and have possibly regrettable sex so it serves a purpose that's what this is for and it's also for shifting huge amounts of units it's really not for me i'd kind of like to say there's not much wrong with it but i have said quite a few things that I think are wrong with it. I don't think there's much right to it. I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, Ice-T talking about this bullshit r and that the radio stations were playing. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And he was, he's an angry rapper and there were angry rappers and rappers had something to say. And we, often think of rappers having these messages as being kill people and go out and rob people and do that. And sometimes indeed they do say that as a message, but a lot of the time their anger is, uh, you know, of social injustice and things like wage disparities and things like that, you know, things worth being angry about. And then along came a whole new generation of rappers because Usher does sometimes rap who aren't really saying anything apart from let's have sex. And the slide for hip hop RB, and urban music maybe started with ice cubes. Today was a good day, which I think is a brilliant song. Yeah, that's gentle. And then you sort of entered into the world of the 50 cents and the ushers and the Chris Browns and you end up with Drake and they've all got a couple of good songs. I mentioned usher does have yeah, which is an absolute belter closer is a banger. This pass, That was a long pass, wasn't it?
1: (laughs) But there you go. My entire review of it would have been two words if you'd done your bit ahead of mine and I'd heard the words, erection section. (laughs) I think that is essentially
0: what I was going for. I've been shaking my head at both of you. I've got a very different take on this. I don't need to apologise to Usher either because I've always basically liked Usher. I don't see him as part of the, uh, the 50 Cent wave, he was a few years before that. So he came out with You Make Me Wanna in 1998, which I thought was absolutely superb. It's still my favourite Usher song. But it's got that acoustic guitar in it that was very much part of hit R&B at the time. Gorgeous piece of music. I've liked a lot of his stuff over the years. Poppy Collar, think he's great. Yeah, that's a classic, obviously. He did end up chasing trends, much in the way that I've criticised Rihanna for chasing trends, but I think some of his EDM bangers were particularly strong examples of an r and star going EDM. In fact, he was quite quick off the mark to do it compared to some of the others. So OMG, I think that's great. DJ got us falling in love. Silly, but it's great. This is one of his slow jams. I love a slow jam. And I love a slow summer jam. This is the time of the year where you roll the soft top down and you put on something about 106 BPM and it's a perfect soundtrack for the summer. They have them every year in RB. Wayne Wonder, No Letting Go. Absolutely fantastic slow summer jam. It's not an erection section song. It is not a let's go off and have bad sex song. It's a breakup song. It is Usher wondering whether or not to break off his relationship because he feels they're going nowhere. And it is a song in two stages. In verse one, he's thinking, I, re- I don't want to end this, but I really think I am going to have to end it. In verse two, we've got a kind of flash forward. He has ended it, but now he's full of regret and he knows he can't get her back and he's wondering what to do. But that's like a sort of flash forward because then we come back to the chorus and we're back to basically where we were in verse one. He's got a little premonition that if he ends it with her, this is what's going to happen. And I think it sells all of that really, really nicely. Musically, I think it is a sophisticated and dexterous piece of work, my Love Love the arrangements. Gorgeous. The vocals, all those cascading and overlapping vocal dubs, they work really well. Loads to get your teeth into. Yeah, okay, it's not exactly an earworm, and you absolutely struggle to sing it at karaoke. For sure. It's not like Love is All Around, which you can't help singing along to whether you want to or not. But the, that sheer complexity of the track draws you back in for repeat listens. And if you're into it, it's going to be a long time before you get tired of it. I am Team Usher. I am Team R&B Slow Summer Jams. Someone has to be. Thank you
2: a nice defensive usher because you did mention a couple of tunes that i'd forgot the collaborations that he did with like Calvin harris yeah when all r&b stars were doing that they were all right but i take issue with your it's not a erection section song because it's a breakup song loads of erection section songs are breakup songs careless whispers is erection section that is a breakup song you could just be at the end of the night oh oh it's so sad It's slow. Let's rub up against each other anyway and go home and do it. But I am
0: critiquing the song for its intention, not its unintended effect. I don't think that was Usher's intention. That'll get the ladies
2: grinding
0: their asses. I don't think that's why he made it. I'm not that cynical.
2: Uh, See, I am that cynical. I don't think that was what he was trying to do. I think he wanted to sell records. What was that? I think this is just whatever crap. Shift units don't care. And, you know, that's fine. That's the job of a pop star. That's absolutely fine. But I would rather they were doing the obviously contrived stuff. DJ's got us falling in love. That's just nonsense. Mm. But that's more honest. It's the disingenuous. Oh, yeah, here we are. We've actually got some real stuff to say when I I don't think that they have. I'd rather they were just doing floor bangers.
1: I thought we established that in season one, that when it was summertime in Nairsboro and you rolled the top down in your car, you played Son of My Father by Chicory Tip. I thought that was, did we not?
2: Yeah, we did. Yeah, so I'm sorry, yeah. Mike, but I'm... <laughs> that's quite the playlist, isn't it? Like when if you hear a car, yeah, fifty-inch rims pulling up alongside, yeah, low slung like the Baps going like this, and you can hear the rumbling bass, and then the windows come down, and you just get the back end of usher. <laughs> And then it goes into tea. I don't have a top to roll down. I don't have a car.
1: I have to say, Mike, that that sounded to me like the inane ramblings of somebody that's had three big nights out in Manchester. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, come on, then you lot, forward we be march. Here come...
1: the twenty tens. Uh huh. Ziggy eggs.
0: Want more problem with
1: you, girl.
0: Hey. This is Problem by Ariana Grande featuring Iggy Azalea. It was the first of seven number ones that Ariana Grande has had to date between 2014 and 2020. Of those seven number ones, five of them she was the lead artist. Two more she was a featured artist. Problem spent a single week at number one and was replaced by Will I Am with It's My Birthday. Altogether. Ariana Grande has had 19 top 10 hits, that 17 as a lead, two as a feature. As for Iggy Azalea, it's her only number one. She's had four more top 10s just between 2013 and 2015, all as a lead artist. And on problem, she does the spoken intro and she does the rap section. There is also a contribution on the chorus by Big Sean, who does whispered vocals. He's not actually officially credited on the track
2: i struggle a bit with ariana grande really i just find her songs incredibly forgettable like everything about her just seems soft focus and beige she looks like a snapchat filter and i think the majority of the problem with it is it's the instrumentals and the production i don't think it's her i think she's clearly got a great voice i mean you don't have that number of hits without being good. And obviously I'm not the key demographic. I'm not who she's targeting to go out and buy her songs, you know, when she's making them. But I think the instrumentals and in production, they, they really don't do anything for me. I play a couple of tracks of her if I'm forced to, but the only one that I would choose to play is her version of Zero to Hero, where it's over the top of a full band and she absolutely lets loose with it. She sounds like she's having fun it. Absolutely kicks as a tune. It's like bombastic. It's her having a party. Whereas the pop tunes always really seem to me to sound like they've been made by some producer on a computer whose only aim is to make generic music that sounds exactly as if it comes from whichever year he's recording in. And I mean, I say him because I bet it is a bloke. And I, th- I, can't, I think we'd all be so much better off if we just let pop stars sometimes do their own thing rather than doing what the marketing man says now that said what the marketing man says to do is clearly right if all you're bothered about is having a hit she has lots and lots of hits so there is obviously wisdom in doing what the market man says if that's what you're bothered if your only aim is to shift units job done well i think this could so easily be done much better been off johnny laptop Get someone like Mark Ronson in to make actual music. He does that very well with actual instruments and things like that. This sounds like it's been made on GarageBand, the uh, instrumental accompaniment to it. There's loads of music that I do think can benefit from being entirely synthetic. There's some really great electro pop out there. I've I've got no issues with sequences and keyboards and stuff like that, but catchy sing-along pop when it's all just so totally fake just sounds plastic to me. It's not Iggy Azalea's greatest moment either and I, I think she's got quite a lot more to say than she says in this. Ariana Grande's got a great voice but a version of this played by a band with Ariana Grande not doing more than just batting her eyelashes and looking amazing, I think would be magic. I think this could be a really, really good song and I just don't think it is. It just feels farted out by a production line, if I'm honest, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, I actually broadly agree. You say she's like a Snapchat filter. I think in five years' time, if somebody, if they reveal that Ariana Grande wasn't actually a human, it was just like an AI created thing, you'd just go, oh, that figures. It feels like to me, somebody who has absolutely no creative control over their career. It feels to me like they are being paid a salary and some bigwig in an office somewhere is essentially determining what they do next, that they're basically just a karaoke singer for hire. That may be very unfair on Ariana Grande. Perhaps she is lovely and powerful and has incredible amounts of agency and is empowered. I agree with Trev. I've never really been able to get into her songs. I find them a bit breathy and a bit forgettable. We're talking about, you know, you scroll down Usher's Wikipedia page and there's no controversy section Their Bloody ears with Iggy Azalea. I'd tell you that for nothing. So I don't really like it feels to me also like we've talked about this before that there's a there was a period of a long while where it was pop singer gets popular renter rapper, you know, Katy Perry and Snoop Dogg, Jesse J on price tag, all that. You know, you just get B O B or G Easy. Exactly. Gerald Easy or whatever get them onto your track and do her thing and she, you know i read an interview you know loves Ziggy alien wanted to work with them before this was the perfect chance and all this sort of thing and you think bugger was it just needed a rent-a-rapper and they were available you know or they were popular at the time or something just ticked a box somewhere so it feels a little bit like that it feels like you've done the second verse you think oh well, where's the rap oh here it is oh, and you roll your eyes and you go right okay there we go and then there'll be another chorus Yep, there's the chorus, and it's going to end in a minute. So, formulaic, it's not terrible. You know, the whole one less problem without you thing is quite catchy and stuff. I mean, you know me. I love a female pop star, right? I was having this conversation with my wife this week, who absolutely does not understand Taylor Swift, does not understand why there is this rush for tickets and iconic, doesn't understand. It's just a girl. Just sings songs. The songs are okay. And I feel a bit like that with Ariana Grande. Obviously, global megastar, but I absolutely just don't get it. And this song hasn't helped in that respect.
0: Actually, this was a historic record. I thought you might have picked up on this, Nick, actually. Problem was a historic number one in the UK singles charts. And do you know why? It's because it was the first number one to get to number one, Well, it actually got to number one on the week that they changed the rules for how the charts were compiled. In the week before Problem got to number one, the chart was constructed entirely by sales. Obviously, at this point, it was mostly download sales as opposed to physical sales. From this week onwards, they included streaming figures in the calculation of the charts, and Problem was the first beneficiary. It's actually interesting. I took a look at the chart the week before and the chart the week after to see whether there'd been a massive shakeup. Actually, there wasn't. It wasn't a total overnight seismic game changer, although obviously it had an impact further down the line. That's something to talk about another time. Let's talk about Ariana Grande. Yeah, she's largely passed me by, got to admit. This is normally my cue to take an extended deep dive into a back catalogue. But after the weekend I've just had, an Ariana Grande deep dive was never going to happen. Gentle pastoral acoustic music has been my prescription for the last three days. Okay, Ariana Grande herself, she said that the song, quote, represents the feeling of being absolutely terrified to reapproach a relationship that gone sour, but you want to more than anything. Well, I'm sorry. She does not sound terrified on this track. One little bit. She's just a usual perky ponytail flicking Snapchat filter self, basically. Show pony, if you like. Like the Usher track, this is sung from the perspective of someone who is contemplating giving their partner the old heave ho. Hasn't quite yet made the final decision. But on this one, the suggestion is that her partner has in some way done her wrong. With Usher, it's more the case that the two of them have slowly drifted apart so there's a little pinch of recriminatory sass in this one if you like but it's a good deal more playful than it's angry and ariana grande she's mocking a lot more than she's chiding there's a mocking tone to that refrain in the chorus People keep saying they like it because it's got that 90s R&B sound. And as usual, they're falling into the usual trap of saying 90s R&B when they actually mean late 90s, early 2000s R&B. Everyone does this. And yeah, I like those late 90s, early 2000s R&B elements. It's a genre of music I like very much. I like that honking sax. I really like Big Sean's whispering and the chorus. I think he's a better guest than Iggy Azalea, actually. Really like the breakdown does its job, comes and goes quite quickly. Iggy Azalea, yeah, her contribution is serviceable, if not outstanding. Doesn't do anything desperately clever or inventive with her bit. Yeah, like Trev said, bin off Mr Laptop. Might sound okay on crappy little laptop speakers. Once you play it through a decent sound system, it really just sounds cheap and shrill and tinny and nasty while the Usher track sounds gorgeous and lush and full and Ariana Grande's vocals they're just way too shrill for my tastes totally subjective can't get with her vocal register at all does not inspire me to do a future deep dive but I think this is decent as far as it goes an unlikely candidate for a historic number one but there you have it
2: I've already mentioned Zero to Hero that I firmly recommend people who are a bit like me about Ariana Grande. She's definitely got skill. She's got a voice that she can Mm. use. And on that, it's amazing. And Still Into You is a really good pop song that she made as well. But this one, that production, I was trying to remember who did that. It sounds a lot like Jason Derulo's tunes where Jason Derulo, the quirk on this song is it's going to use a bassoon just a random instrument and brett domino did an amazing parody of that production technique where they just on a computer get any random instrument and just play a few notes and then just sing any inconsequential crap over the top (laughs) so i urge you to listen to brett domino i think it's called you look sexy when you do that uh, because
1: that's actually a better song than this (laughs) uh would you like to hear the chart history of problems i thought you'd never ask So we talked a while back about Daddy and how there were lots of hits in the early days called Daddy, but it's disappeared, essentially, as a word in hits, latterly. And Problem is the opposite. So the first 30 years of the chart, there was only one hit called Problems, and that was by the Everly Brothers uh, until the mid-80s. But since then, there's been quite a few. So you've got Problem by, obviously, uh, Aaron and Grande Gazalia. You've got What's Your Problem by Blamange. Uh, Also, What's Your Problem by the Zootons. What is the Problem by Graffiti. Do We Have a Problem? By Nicki Minaj and Little Baby. America Has a Problem. Uh, Beyonce. Uh, Living Is a Problem Because Everything Dies. By Biffy Clyro. Problems by the Everly Brothers. Mo Money Mo Problems. And uh, Sorus B.I.G. Uh, Jay-Z's 99 Problems. And Muse's Map of the Problematique. Are your chart hits with problems. There's some good tunes in there.
0: There's a little reference, isn't there, in this track. Iggy Azalea's rap finishes, I got 99 problems, but you won't be one. Yeah, really clever, that. Yeah,
2: wow. That moment, I was like, oh, is there some sort of strong feminine messaging? And no, no, I don't think there is. But yeah, yeah, maybe, as I say, I'm not the target demographic for this. Maybe teenage girls are listening to that and going, yeah. So there is maybe something more in here than I'm getting, because I wouldn't be expected to get it. They ain't writing tunes for middle-aged white guys that sound like this, are they?
0: Listeners, if you are a teenage girl, if you'd like to submit an explanation of why Ariana Grande means everything to you, please contact us via the usual channels.
2: So uh, some of the people that I work with at various bars, because bar staff are made up of a younger generation than I, and I know loads of them who, like, love Ariana Grande. And bearing in mind all the other stuff that they like, I'm tempted to go, there must be something that I'm not getting because one of them really likes Nickelback and I don't mean all oh, the hits of Nickelback. She knows the tunes of Nickelback. I, I think Nickelback are a great band. I know it's cool to not like them, but I, I like them. Pref, um, I think
0: we've grasped over this podcast series that you're quite partial to Nickelback. Are you secretly doing a climbing Fisher on us? Are you deliberately dropping Nickelback into every podcast? I've been wondering this for a few months.
2: <laughs> but yeah i could think of like four people that i work with who really rate ariana and they have good musical tastes for the rest of it so i assume there is something in there that i'm missing
1: if you want people who like ariana grande to contact you mike and contact the podcast you'd better have an instagram and a snapchat channel because that's all they'll have
0: there are limits. Did Did anybody watch the Ariana Grande, the, the, you know, the memorial concert in Manchester after the um, arena explosion? I did watch that, and I thought she did a fine job. I thought, oh, I think I think I get why people like Ariana Grande now. I thought she was strong
2: after all of that. She came across really well. Yeah, um, you know, she seemed absolutely genuine, and yeah. you know, that's a horrible thing for any. Want to go through, and you know, obviously, it, it was much worse for other people than it was for her. But it can't have been remotely pleasant, you know, from her perspective. And I, I do think, you know, everything that I've seen with her and in interviews and things like that, she seems like a, a decent person. Mm. I kind of I want her to be in charge more, um you yeah, know, because we've yeah. seen how good stuff can be. Where you know, Taylor Swift, she's in charge, isn't she? And I think she's excellent. So I think Ariana's got it in her to do better than this, because it, it's not a bad song. I just think it's it's, it's just that production. It makes me want to smash up my laptop to make sure I never accidentally do something like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right then, voting time, people. Nick, start with you, please, as I always do, because you're the left-hand column on my piece of paper.
1: No, that's OK. I'm going to have to do this on the hoof as we go along. I haven't really made any decisions before I turned up today. Um, let us go for minus one two. Iggy, Azalea and Ariana Grande from the 2010s. I wasn't going to do this, but Mike's defence of Usher has pushed it into the zone It's firmly in the zone I will say. I uh, never want to hear it again. Also in the mezone, I'm going to put uh, The Animals, House of the Rising Sun from the 1960s. Third place, let's go the 80s. Let's go Frankie goes to Hollywood. Second place, uh, deuxième position. For uh, 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 Charles Aznavour, s'il vous plaît. First place, just have it. I, like, again, will say, I haven't heard it for years, heard it the other day. What a brilliant pop record. Love is All Around by Wet 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 is three points. Trois points.
2: Trev, how about you? Ariana Grande as the uh, meh zone is the easiest one in the world because that kind of sums up most of my feelings about Ariana Grande. That is just firmly meh. And it makes me sad that Wet 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 uh, in the Met zone as well, because I think that's any other week could be number one, actually. But I think we've got three really strong tracks in the top three. For me, you will not be surprised to hear that Usher's not one of them. Usher is far and away the worst. As I was giving my kick into Ariana, I kind of wanted to hark back and make it quite clear that I felt much, much more strongly against Usher. Third place, I'm going to Tribes by Frankie a good driving pop song about a very real subject second place she i think is a wonderful piece of music really well written and by far though in a strong week by far number one is house of the rising sun for me right
0: yeah i had difficulties this week because i was fine with my last choice but the other five songs i think they're all really good songs so it took a while to work out what to go met with but yeah like both of you ariana grande Gets the minus one points. And it is mostly to do with that cheap and nasty production. Metzone is going to be shared by Usher and the Animals. Wow. Oh, they'll be happy in there together.
1: And that sounds like a... Honestly, you should pitch that to CBBC. Sounds like a great show, that. Come on, kids. We're going to watch Usher and the Animals. <laughs> There's a TV format here. The Metzone.
0: This week, Usher and the Animals. we in the Metzone. Oh, they get on. Um, Right. Third position, one point I'm giving to Charles Hohi, Hohi, Ho as Navour. Second position is Wet, 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 Love is All Around. But yeah, perhaps it was because I was there at the time, but still. First position, three points, Frankie goes to Hollywood, which means that, this is a curious situation, Ariana Grande is currently placed last. Just above her is Usher in fifth. Quite a way above them both is the animals in fourth position and then that leaves us with a three-way tie for first position we've got charles aznavour frankie goes to hollywood and wet 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 all dead level with a collective value of five points each how exciting what a moment to throw it over to our listeners for their votes now then listeners this is how you do it just like what we've done we need your first second and first favorite songs and your most band hated or your least favorite with or without comments we love comments but you don't have to leave comments you can leave your comments at our patreon site patreon.com forward slash which decade tops it'll cost you but it'll only cost you three quid a month it's only the price of a coffee and you get perks well you don't get many perks you do get a few perks Right. we'll tell you when the next episode is out we'll work on the perks as time goes on please support us help us fund this podcast if you will but if you're not yet ready to take that leap into joining the supporters club on Patreon, you can vote on twitter at which tops. you can vote on threads yes we're on threads and we're also at which decade tops on threads you can gmail us which decade is tops at gmail.com. And you can leave a comment on our Facebook page. Search for which decade is tops or pops, it will take you there. Right, I think that's a wrap, folks. I'll go and take something remedial for my post weekend damage. Thank you, Nick. Goodbye. Hurrah. Thank you, Trev. Goodbye. Hurrah. Goodbye, everybody. See you next time.
1: Which decade is tops
0: for pops